Welcome to Ahali, a series of conversations where I, Jan Altay, meet with ear-opening thinkers, artists, curators and designers to discuss the future of cultural production. Let's start with what Ahali means. Ahali refers to a community that flows, that doesn't have boundaries, yet nevertheless producing a meaningful togetherness. It is about a culture of being together, and Ahali generates knowledge that is not fixed and always open for newcomers. So, welcome to Ahali Conversations. Our second season is pretty much about notions of practice. We will be exploring how cultural producers do their work, whether they are artists, designers, curators or writers. And together we will figure out how they position themselves within the larger context that they inhabit. We'll be sharing visual samples from the works we discuss on Instagram, so make sure to check out our account, ahali.podcast, to get glimpses of the projects that we discuss today. We are in conversation with MetaHaven today, and MetaHaven's body of work encompasses filmmaking, writing and design. And their activities offer a kind of cultural practice that doesn't shy from producing knowledge and reflection as much as the production of affect. They have a number of films from 2015 onwards, such as The Sprawl, Propaganda About Propaganda, Information Skies from 2016, Hometown, and Eurasia, Questions on Happiness, both from 2018, and Chaos Theory, their most recent work, which has just been finished. And they recently had solo exhibitions such as Turnarounds at Eflux, Version History in ICA London, which I saw that one, and Earth at Stedelijk Museum Amsterdam. And they also adopt formats such as lectures and books to foreground their thinking. And today we have Daniel van der Welden with us and Vinka Kruk is the, let's say, other half of MetaHaven. And we'll start with their most recent work, Chaos Theory and hopefully discuss how they work, how they position and enable themselves to provide such a range and output. So welcome once more, Daniel, and congratulations on the recently finished work, Chaos Theory. Thank you. I'm going to start with this recent work, but also to contextualize it a little bit within the, let's say, trajectory of your practice. It's a continuation of a series of films, if I understand correctly, but it's, of course, standalone work. And you've mentioned elsewhere before that there is a kind of move or, let's say, shift from criticality to lyricality in the work. And that maybe coincides with the shift from design to writing and then to filmmaking. But actually, in all of them, I see a kind of the idea of the essay in the sense of the origin of the word, like as a space of trying out ideas, trying out effects, trying out flexions. So would you agree with that or would, could we consider them as essays? I think yeah, that's pretty fair to say that they were, are related to the essay, that everything that we do is related to the essay. I think that for us, it's been particularly important to bridge the whatever divides exist between essay and poetry. Mm-hmm. I think you have essay and, you know, philosophy on the one hand, you have essay and let's say current affairs 
or a commentary on the other hand and you have essay and poetry and i think you you also have a, a separate let's say niche or strand which is the essay film mm-hmm. and i i think that since all our films deal with modes of narration an experiment with modes of narration i think there is uh, definitely a relationship to that and to the essay film yeah. however i think that what we wanted to indicate by you know the shift from criticality to lyricality is also a shift let's say away from the notion of commentary or the notion of that your film latches on to a notion of a current, you know, development mm-hmm. and that the kind of merit of the narrative is is to be seen in relation to that current. I think that type of contemporary relationship will always exist in whatever you do, but you don't need to highlight it as the first thing that your work sort of like is about. And that's what that shift indicates in a way. So I think the shift to lyricality, whilst you know, being in one way or another, being committed to the notion of the essay is also related to the idea of finding a voice or finding voices through which something can be articulated. And that's something that Chaos Theory, the latest film, as you mentioned, is is trying to do. Yeah. And with Chaos Theory, it seems to me that there is a kind of, I don't know how to put it, a kind of more broader sense of like, at least that's how I felt in comparison to the more grounded or directly reflective or responsive position, as you mentioned in the previous works, it's more kind of entering into a more effectual, a more touching relationship. And the film is itself also about, you could argue, a relationship. And that in a way resonates and offers another sense of knowledge, another sense of reflecting And I think fiction and fantasy, or in a way, the realm of dreams even, and poetry, as you mentioned, seem to play a significant role in achieving that. I don't know if you would agree. Yeah, I do. I I think that fiction and fantasy played a a strong role in our work since the first beginnings, Mm -hmm. in the sense that when we started working, we were concerned with the kind of results in art practice and at that time, specifically in design practice and more specifically, even in graphic design practice, mm-hmm. uh, which is where we come from originally, that counted as real. And we were very interested in hypotheticals and, you know, in a sense, speculations becoming a ground for presence, for being real in a way. And we need to keep in mind that sort of at the time, notions like speculative design or critical design were not commonplace. The notion of a design practice as a research practice was not something that was a very commonly accepted notion. And in chaos theory, you know, we can say that chaos theory more or less relates to the two previous films that were made in that sort of strand of voice finding. The first one being Information Skies, the second one being Hometown. That chaos theory is a film that in a kind of more straightforward way embraces a notion of connection, affect, and attachment mm-hmm. in a way that is, to me at least, the most from the three films separated from the kind of concerns that, you know, our work also has with ways in which emotion can be played with and emotion can be something that is used to manipulate audiences. So whereas, you know, a film like The Sprawl, Propaganda About Propaganda, really was concerned with how our narratives being constructed that are playing into a propagandistic affect or an affect in a way that makes it scale online or something like that. I think that, you know, Chaos Theory as a film about basically about parenthood, really, or parents and children, basically, mm-hmm. and what those relationships constitute. It's also a film that wants to 
maybe consider positive emotions as complex emotions and wants to sort of look into them. Yeah, and I think that's uh, the development we've been going through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and since you mentioned all work unavoidably relates to their time, I was curious if the pandemic, how do you position the pandemic reality with the production of the work? Was it a coincidence that it collided or did it have a direct influence in the way in which it, the work evolved? Well, I think it initially the pandemic just collided with the work. Mm-hmm. I mean, the work originally was to be finished in April 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the deadline. And I think the funding for the film was complete by late January 2020. So the, the original lead time was very, very corrupt in a way. And I think that, you know, since the pandemic interrupted the making, we were able to extend very much what it meant to make this film and to kind of zoom in way more into some of the breaks between the sentences in a way of the script that otherwise would have just maybe gone through more quickly. Mm-hmm. So the film was recorded in part in February, I think, 2020, and then one part in August 2020. So there was a significant gap between these both periods. And since it's a 25-minute film, you know, it's not that long. There's a, a quite, you know, in a sense, in your own experience, this is something quite compact. So the closer that these periods of filming are to each other, the more compact it feels. But that's not the case at all here. It felt quite pretty extended. Mm-hmm. And then we also did another round of filming with on several closely knit locations that are, you know, interspersed within the film that was done also in the period of about like maybe nine months or something. So there is definitely the way that the, the pandemic sort of slowed down the making and also allowed us to sort of ask a lot more questions to ourselves about certain parts, sequences in the film. Because the film starts from a script. It starts from a, a kind of, yeah, poem or or monologue or a double monologue of two characters. And the, um, the original part of the child, for example, mm-hmm. who is called X in the film and is played by uh, Valentina Di Mondo, that was something that was originally much more abbreviated, that role. But we, I think we discovered during making that we needed more story mm. for this character. And then we, we, we developed that also, which happened sometime, let's say last fall, basically. So that's was the process by which the film got, you know, was growing a little bit actually, even during the pandemic, but the thematics of the film were developed independent of the expectation of a pandemic in which we would be spending so much time at home and in which, you know, the domestic environment would, you know, become so dominant in each of our lives, you know, that was not anticipated when we were preparing yeah i guess for all of us so maybe now that we touched on the process i'm also curious about how you work how usually is your process and obviously with chaos theory as you elaborated so vividly is it has maybe slightly changed to shift from making to an idea of growing which i find really interesting and that necessitates time and attention probably And the fact, I wanted to ask, it was in my notes, the idea of iterations and revisions, just purely from the process of our conversation with you that I have observed a couple versions of the film. So I wanted you to reflect on the process a little bit more, how it usually, how you usually operate maybe, or this current shift, and the question of revising works, like revisiting work in the process. 
Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to, to talk about iterations. I think since the beginning, we've been interested in the notion that film and moving image include a significant amount of recursive uh, rather than linear mm. sequencing. So there's a notion in which recursive sequencing of certain motives in, in films can determine what time is in a film rather more than purely linear development from where something develops from A to B. And on the one hand, you can say that music videos are often recursive structures in the sense that often music videos are constructed out of a number of simultaneous motives that unfold together with the music. And this is a way to hold attention for three minutes, but also a way in which moving image responds to sound and to music. And musical structures have, have always been very important to the way that we deal with moving image, if only our first film works or moving image works were music videos. And, you know, I think that in particular here, there is a lot of material, visual material there of which the emotion, the emotional expression is constantly shifting. So we're dealing with two protagonists who are seeking what their relationship is. And in this seeking, there's a lot of subtle shifts and it's our job in a way, or our mission to allow viewers sort of into that process. But on the other hand, also to note, to to kind of edit where that process is going. I feel that that's one thing that we're, we've been doing in this film. And iterations of the film have existed because we were also struggling with ways in which the emotion and the amount of complexity that you offer to a viewer has to be balanced against what the viewer ultimately gets from the film. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you keep adding new information or or confusing emotions after a certain point in a film, and I, I would say that that's usually the two-third mark if we think about stories as three-act structures more or less by default, you would say that at the beginning of the third act, you should be concerned about how much new dynamic you add. And you can do that. You can add a lot of dynamic, but that amount of dynamic needs to be premised on the amount of dynamic and the frequency of the dynamic in the previous two acts, in a way. So so I think what we've been working on primarily in the different iterations of the film was the way that the third act should materialize, which is the kind of coming to a conclusion of the work. And I think that's something that we learned a great deal from, just in general. Mm -hmm. uh, but but in more in particular in this film, I think there's a propensity of audiences to think of works that we do as adding to confusion or wanting to confuse people. And I think that is not at all the objective that we have, at least not with this film. But I would also say with uh, Hometown and Information Skies, it was never the objective. But the objective is to acknowledge complexity within a structure that is nevertheless moving towards a joint and also very embodied outcome. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I think also the question or the thing you raised about reflection is important because you cannot reflect on something that you have not experienced. So the notion of experience is it needs to be embodied before you can actually really, really reflect. That's why we've given the adult character YZ two embodiments. One is through a, like a, a person who is uh, Georgina David, who actually played also in The Sprawl and also in Information Skies and at the same time through a voice over in two different languages. One is in Hungarian, the other is in French. And the French more reflecting voice 
starts only after the first voice, which is Hungarian, has, you know, gone through some experiences, right? At least, you know, narrated these experiences from, from the perspective of an embodiment or an entanglement. And I think that, that the essay is in that sense always premised on the notion of, uh, of the entanglement first, because you can talk about anything you want and you can also have an opinion about anything you want. But that opinion or that position is always premised on something that is more entangled or embodied in the beginning. And I think the film is an attempt to include that layer as well. And I would say that's one step more like away from commentary. And I also want to add that all these positions or all these, you know, ways of working are really attempts. So in that sense, they're essays. Mm -hmm. An essay is no more than an attempt. Exactly. No, that's what I love about the, the notion of the essay. I was even uh, attempting at a certain point to be asked like to be called an essayist rather than an artist, designer or academic, what have you, because those somehow uh, never fitted what I personally was pursuing. And I thought the essayist might have made sense. It didn't stick, but let's, <laughs> let's patch it here. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a great deal of intentionality in your work, which I've been observing both in the earlier practice and also the recent works and the way you articulate this work and the process cements that impression that there is a great deal of intentionality while the work may seem kind of to have loose ends or maybe even at times discrepancies between the content and the visual language. I'm referring to more the graphics works as well, but there is a great deal of intentionality in your work and the visual language you have built. I think now you have built maybe two visual languages. One is more in the graphic realm mm. and the other is more maybe in the filmic realm. I mean, they sometimes collide, but there are some distinctions in my observation. How would you reflect on form and form making? Because much of, I mean, there is a really kind of theoretical route to your mode of thinking and production, but we also exist and you exist in form a lot. And how do you talk about form? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. I always think that conceptual art is like a highly formalistic position and production. I'm referring to the origins like the 60s, but it's kind of disabled to a certain extent in artistic work to speak about form. So I always have that. I'm also coming from that lineage in my own cosmology, but I see conceptual practice as a very formal practice as well. So I was curious, like how you talk about form. And I think that when we talk about formalism as as an outcome of conceptual art, let's say that there's um, that form is a result of a of a series of uh, rule based procedures, basically mm -hmm. that are followed. We're not, you know, talking necessarily about visual expression or the way in which visual expression and poetic expression or la language expression, you know, find each other or match each other, creating uh, harmonies or resonances on the one hand and discrepancies on the other. And I feel that within, when we talk about theory on the one hand and form on the other, it is to some extent a little bit, uh, maybe, I'm not sure whether we can talk about these things as a real binary. Mm -hmm. I don't, I think they're very much taught as a binary. And I think that moments in our lives reinforce the, the notion or the idea that these are binaries, in fact, but I'm not sure whether they actually are. Yeah. But what everything requires you is to work through 
the, either the visual or the written is a similar process of rendering. And in that sense, rendering is always a form of intentionality, which is not the same as having a teleology. So I think that those are two things that are often confused. You know, if you have intentions, doesn't mean you have goals. That's Those are two different things. Mm. And I think with regard to our own background and the way that we come to visual culture and the way that we come to making what we make, you know, we can say, yes, there's design and there's textile works and there's like video works and film works but but all these things come from the same world and i think that one one way in which we would express this in being about the interface so there is something in which film today speaks to us through interfaces that are more obvious than they were maybe in previous decades and and i think acknowledging the notion of of the interface in the way that we work with film is one way in which we also acknowledge, let's say, the background of being graphic designers or the background of, of working with, you know, the idea of an image never being just that, you know, there's never the image, there's the way the, the framing of the image, the overlays to the image. But we also know that if you present too many layers, if you present too many things that go with the image, people may seem to think that that's what it's about. They may seem to think that if you say there's 10 more layers to what I'm saying, then they think, oh, so the, the, the actual intention is to confuse the layers with the, with the ground in a way. And that, that's not the, not the intent, I think, of most of the things we do. I think that we do want to achieve some form of relationship between what is what what is an interface and what is a moving image or what is a film in what ways are these connected and i i think that when you talk about formalism that is something for me where you can say that the use of form is not questioned anymore but just implemented that you get like this notion of a sort of formalist approach where things are there because they need to be there yeah. and i think there's always a, a moment where you are going to you know think about subtracting forms rather rather than sort of adding more to them yeah exactly i mean that was my critique to conceptual art as a construct because by in a way seeming to or arguing to deny the form it became formalistic that was my criticism i didn't mean your work was formalistic but that was a critique no no but but i think that that even if you think about our work that there is always a risk of every i think every practice has a risk of formalism formalism is also a mode of pitting patterns that you've rehearsed previously up to the point that they become manneristic within your practice, you know? So, and I know that there's mannerism in every practice, also in ours, that we need to sometimes, you know, disentangle and ask like, why are you doing this? Why do we need to do it in this way? Yeah, so so in a way you can say that conceptual art provided a highly intellectualized form of mannerism too, in that sense. But I think also that we're never quite so comfortable with genre descriptions. Like you will always have the odd the odd ones in conceptual art as in any genre and any approach, there's the, those that don't fit. And that's very much true for us, I think as well. For sure. So we're, we're very used to being on the boundaries of different fields, but we're never really in the center of any of them. And also to your point about layers and kind of the intention being confusion or not, maybe we should also put a footnote that actually most often things are very multi-layered and <laughs> so yeah there's that reality as well so now that you we've come to maybe a little bit the discussion of context i also had a question regarding the ways in which your work 
is shown and circulates or how you inhabit certain contexts or how you infiltrate certain formats from books to publishing to exhibitions. And so there is on the one hand, the book or the computer screen, which is a very kind of personal interface or let's say individual interface. And you are also trying more spatial, larger scale settings with material elements and even uh, kind of works or components involved. I want to ask, like, I mean, we obviously inhabit these given formats and institutions, but let's say, let's say for chaos theory or for your work in general, do you give thought on like, what would be the, like, is there an ideal uh, mode of reception or could there be like different versions of encountering the work or like, how do you reflect? And maybe we can tap this to how the chaos theory can be seen by our listeners as well. I know it's a very layered question, but. Yeah, I think that versioning a work across media and across spaces is something that needs that happens anyway whether you and the question is whether you can add some form of agency to that process rather than it just happening for you you know so any work that that is shown in a film festival that is recognized in the film world will generate an imdb entry and that you know so the versioning of a work not just how it can be seen but what it's seen to be as a work is happening within digital space without you having much control over that so i think that what what you need to think about is the agency that you do have about how people encounter the work and i think the pandemic has also shown us that that the notion of an online experience is in a sense a bare is to some extent a bare necessity has become a bare necessity of a of a work you know that you saying that this work can only be shown as an installation or it can only be shown you know in this or that way is something that only a very small group of artists can permit themselves to to say you know mm -hmm. and in case you want to get a work to people you need to think about its distribution and you need to think about how is this work versioned across spaces and platforms and i, I think uh when i first saw a version of chaos theory projected in a in an art space which was in april of this year I wasn't necessarily happy with it. Mm. And that's because the pandemic has also committed our viewing experiences to smaller screens. You know, I, I, I felt after basically a year of being indoors that cinema is something for the, really for that you have on your headphones and that you have on a small screen in front of you. And the, the notion of making something large didn't necessarily coincide with the notion of making something relevant or making something central or making something important. Yeah. And for myself, I took some note of that and I was like, you know, I'm really interested what, what, how, not just, you know, how our practice will accommodate this. The goal is not just bigger, 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 but the no, the, the goal is to create specific bubbles, if you, if you, if you will, in which, in which the work uh, can speak and an audience can feel compelled to, to be involved in it. That's all a very maybe complex way of saying that we are considering basically all of our future work to be available in, in many formats, both offline and online. And I do think that some work will work better in an offline space. For example, a film like Eurasia from 2018 is a film that definitely is designed for a space where you sit on a carpet and you sit in front of this video wall and all of that sort of works together to create the experience of the work and you have an experience of ground 
with the carpet on which you sit, which is very important for the viewing experience. But for example, with chaos theory, I think the work is fine when it's online and you can actually have it, you can experience it just as, as much in an online space. So the work will be shown online on several stages uh, this year. So there will be those moments where we can see how a physical show and let's say a digital component to that show work can work together. Yeah. And I think the, the pandemic has pretty much, you know, shaped our sensibility to that, to that idea in an extent that we couldn't have anticipated. I mean, we knew Netflix and we knew Mubi and we had a number of other platforms, but I also think that now there's so many video on demand platforms that show really, really interesting and compelling moving image work from, from all around the world, particularly from, for example, you know, non-central regions that are not, were not previously considered let me rephrase that there is a lot of work from filmmakers from regions like Middle East, for example, that is showcased in video on demand format at the moment mm -hmm. that I think is really, really maybe more impactful than the routine cinema releases that we see all around us that, that follow an industry model. And I'm, I'm particularly, we are really interested in artists and other, you know, figures that are not, you know, industrialists reshaping the, the kind of ecosystem that can exist around moving image work that is not not the product of an industry and often not the product of of any kind of notion of centralized power but much more you know in that sense peripheral and i think that's that's what what the pandemic has you know really increased the sens sensibility for Definitely. I mean, you touched on two very important things. I'll just say like from personal experience, when I was watching Chaos Theory, I watched it walking on a treadmill at home and the, from my phone and uh, with earphones. And on the one hand, it was like a really interesting experience. And on the other, I asked myself like, is the video installation... I'll call it tradition now, or let's say convention, really the best format for this because it really demanded the attention. And like Tim Ingold says, attention also always involves tension. And the kind of devotion is actually, no matter how big the projection is, really hard to grasp in the video installation format. And the the fact that, especially in the case of chaos theory, that you need to watch it from beginning to end really necessitates another form or another format. And I'm happy to hear that you are also exploring that because it really got me thinking about questions of distribution, circulation. And since you've been engaged in publishing a lot, especially for in the case of designing books and ebooks and circulating ideas on the web. I think that we can maybe, if you like, tie this in to the question of publishing. I wanted to first respond to what you said about video installations, if I may, because I think it ties in with, as you tied it in with the notion of publishing, I think it's important that we think about two things. Basically, one thing is the notion of um, watching together with other people, mm. that our experiences are experiences that to some extent are to be had together with others. And that's one thing. And the other thing is the contractuality of the relationship with viewers or with audiences. I think that when you talk about, you know, our work emerging from something like the, the early internet or something, if we can call 2004 the early internet, you know, to some extent it is because it's the, the internet before social media and the internet before pay sites. So it's, it's an, it's the internet before tracking in a way also. 
And I think that is a very, very different idea of the internet or the idea of the online that we have today. I think particularly in the notion of offering whatever online or whatever in the form of something that's published digitally, we do have an increasing contractuality of the relationship. You know, there's so, such a big growth of Patreon, Substack, and other formats that basically replace the notion of the open web with something where there is a paid for transaction. That is rightfully so because a lot of creators online or have not been paid for the work they do online. Mm -hmm. But it has also changed the notion of what the relationship with an audience constitutes in a fundamental sense, since you move from the notion of discovery to the notion of transaction. And I think that's a, a big difference. And I think when we talk about, you know, writing books or writing anything, you initially always talk about a relationship that is not a transaction. You talk about basically about something that you just give to some extent. And then later, of course, you need to decide how to format that act or that the, the thing that that act produces, sort of the product that comes out of that in, in, in a format that may, you know, include a transaction. And of course, you know, a transaction like buying a book is maybe less visible to us because the conditions of the transaction are, are less sort of spelled out in terms of service and whatnot. But there is a transaction. I think what we always imagined film installations would do is provide more like an open context for the encounter with a work in which it's not only possible to go, you know, to enter and leave, but also to see something twice or two or three times, you know, something you cannot do in a cinema, for example, unless you buy a new ticket. And what you say about, you know, chaos theory being really premised on the idea that you see it linear. Yeah, I think that's somehow true. I think that that's true. But I also think that film, and I'm now thinking about Hometown as well, you know, which is a two-channel piece, uh, which is very sort of widescreen because of that, can provide an environment in which it becomes possible to watch some, something together with other people. And I think the, the response that another person has to a work can, in, or the immersion or the way that they respond to a work in general can also influence how you respond. So watching something together is worth something else or something more than watching it alone on your on your laptop, you know? So I think there we have some interesting things to to think about in terms of the video on demand situation versus the art installation. You know, the art installation to a certain extent liberates people from the notion of sitting in a chair and watching something in a linear fashion. I'm not sure whether you if you put chaos theory in a in a cinema and you have people sit and watch it in a linear way, if that's actually a good thing. I think that it could be that this is that the film is too much like like a performance or almost like a theatrical performance to even have the feeling that you normally have when you're watching a film in a cinema uh, with chaos theory. Maybe the film is too much like a musical almost in a certain way. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I just wonder. I know I don't know. This is just free ranging thought. But with regard to to publishing formats, I, I think there's definitely something now where you say like just putting it on the internet for everybody is creating confusion about the status of what you're you're bringing because so many relationships have become valorized by transactional monetary operations. Mm. So the value of the free, the value of the open is changed because a lot more experiences have become conditional experiences. 
So the unconditionality of, of the experience of the non-paid or the non is something that, that is changing. Yeah. And I, I wonder personally where that's going. No, that first of all, uh, let me comment on the, the reflection on the installation and the say communal or collective aspect of the experience. Uh, that was beautiful. I respect that response. And yeah, the question of the something that's out there versus something that I am as the listener or the viewer or the user am committing to as contractually or in a way by paying for it is there is a difference there as well. So that's that was really good. I mean, I'm also curious about the the collectivity that the film making brings versus the more, let's say, writing or graphic design practice, which I imagine to be more kind of insular. The, um, the thing is that with filmmaking or with the involvement of footage that you create with a group of people, you, you do not just include the social relationships that are inherent to producing film, which are very important, but also the notion of that you get a lot of things that you didn't plan for. So you always get a balance between something you you wanted and something you didn't want and something you didn't expect. And that's something that makes the work on what's going to come out out of all of that much more engaging and rewarding than when you just are there to create or design or whatever in a way where there's no limitations. The the notion of an, an embodied enactment or the entanglement of the creation of the footage that is part of a film also creates limitations that are, I think, very interesting and important to work with and work through rather than, let's say, when we would be able to design everything that we do in the 3D program. There's other challenges there. I think, you know, when you talk about game design, for example, we have the fascinating prospect of the open world, the fact that, you know, the experience mm -hmm. has no boundaries and that there needs to be some design principle accounting for the, the way in which there is multiplication of space and a multiplication of possibility beyond what is normally the boundary of an experience or the boundary of, of a viewpoint. But I think within the notion of moving images, we practice it. What is interesting at the moment for us is the notion that you can't design all these things in the same way that you can, can design a page or a graphic or a website or anything, you know, that there is a multiplication of the unexpected, even within very carefully directed scenes, there's, there's so many things that you cannot, let's say, create. And that is, I think, w what's making the process so rewarding of working with, with moving image and sort of directing it as opposed to purely designing it. And if you call design an insular experience, I think that design can be an insular experience when you do not know who your audience is and when you do not know who your partner is or your your relationship is. I do think of design as being defined by relationships, but the notion of relationship and design has been a very constrained idea, often limited to the notion of the client or to the audience. But in fact, you know, design is happening with uh, throughout relationships in many, many ways. So I'm not sure if it's insular. I think that the vocabulary of design has is insular at times, also because designers like everybody else needs to protect their craft from the craft of other people, since in principle, everyone is able to do some basic acts of design. What does constitute an act of design that is professional? And what is the difference from that act with an act that is simply an act of design not done by a designer? And I think the notion of sort of like crafts, craftspersonship when put on a pedestal is something I really respect 
craftspersonship, but at the same time, there's, there's the notion that design is not insular and that we should acknowledge how it's not insular. And for us, filmmaking, sorry for the long answer, but for us, filmmaking has been a way of acknowledging the re- relationality that's always there in a kind of more explicit way. No, it's good to underline that the notion of collaboration has different dimensions. Ultimately, all work, like no work is insular in the cultural practice, that all work involves a process or various processes of collaboration. So thank you for clarifying that. And perhaps I was more thinking about writing rather than design, but I might have framed it differently. But it was a really good point. And it was also good that we touched on your take on design and the process and how you position self with regards to these collaborations, the counterparts that make, in a way, a design process possible, such as a commissioner or a collaborator, and also ultimately the user as also a kind of strong, perhaps even the strongest collaborator in the process, which is hard to track down. I always think that the user maybe is like the key collaborator in any work, any cultural work. Highly conversations are recorded together with participants who can join in the conversation with their questions. If you'd also like to take part in these live gatherings, visit ahali.space and send us a line via email. So I have to note it's going to be kind of like a speculation or a subject of interpretation because on chaos theory, the conflict t-shirt that X was wearing caught my eye. So it got me thinking that the work might be conceived as an enactment of calibration between the parent and the child, which I think are inherently incompatible. Why? Because the mother character, YZ, or any parent, it's in a moment of actuality, it has already became. On the other hand, X, the troubled person, the child, it's the future. It's about the potentiality, this undetermined, which makes me think on a key remark on chaos theory, which is about the approximations and uh, the ambivalence of the approximate present. Well, let me read. The approximate present does not approximately determine the future. So YZ's present might not necessarily determine the future of X. Well, this is the case between any parental relationship, as I said earlier. So like getting back to an earlier remark on hometown, I was thinking, do you think the child inherits the future of the ruins in the form of the parent, vice versa, or both ways? Well, thank you, first of all, for the very careful uh, reading of the works. Like, I think that's, uh, that's, um, it's very nice to hear that you noted the conflict t-shirt in the, in the film conflict is a British anarcho punk band. And when we did the, um, the sort of like, well, you could say our direction for the prepping, the, the filming, the conflict shirt was in the stack of clothes that we had. And when Valentina, you know, was wearing the conflict t-shirt, we found that a, a kind of contradiction was becoming apparent because you have this very 
you know, a child who is not embodying, let's say, when we see Valentina, we do not necessarily think of conflict when we see Valentina, but with the conflict almost being an announcement that's being worn, you know, by the, the ex character, we, we introduce a notion of trouble in a way. As you said, you know, the, the child is a troublemaker. I think you said something like that. It's hard to compare the two because uh, Hometown is a, indeed a film about similar themes, but it's about the lived experience of being a kind of, of having a twin experience or having an experience that is comparable or scalable across two characters who are actually happen to be in different places. And in Hometown, there is indeed that, that sentence, I inherited the future of the ruins. And I think there's a distinction between inheriting the future or inheriting the ruin of the future and inheriting the future of the ruin. So you inherit time. You don't inherit a place, but you inherit, let's say, the potentiality of time. And the idea that, you know, a previous generation always leaves the next generation with some kind of unresolved chaos or mess, you know, that needs to be worked through and that can never be completely worked through. There can never be a final resolution to that, to that mess. There's only the next iteration, hopefully a little bit better than the previous one. I think that the, whereas, you know, Hometown still speaks to these notions in times of, in terms of a kind of spatial allegory where we are able to scale. We are able to see environments, cities, horizons, views from the sky, etc. Like a lot of things that are happening in hometown. In, in Chaos Theory, there is no such thing. Everything is much more confined. Everything is much more constrained in a way to a room where they play a game on a, on a solar panel that's also a table. So there's, there's that notion of, let's say, relationships to space or to outer space that are not spelled out in terms of the scenery, but that are much more embodied through, through objects like the solar panel and the conflict t-shirt and other props. So there's that. So in Chaos Theory, we weren't able to work with scale in the same ways as we were worked with scale in Hometown, for example. And that to, to a great extent has led to the film, you know, so how it and what it is. But, but I do think that there's one thing to children that there is that notion of the commitment of the parent as the child being the best thing that ever happened to them. That is a parent. So there is an underlying enthusiasm or an underlying notion of almost surrender, emotional surrender to this feeling of attachment that is, I think, central to chaos theory and that is a little bit there in hometown, but more more spelled out, sort of more there, more present, more articulated in chaos theory from my point of view. But I do agree with with Khan also that, you know, the final word is also with the viewer or with the user and that the user can make of that what, what they want. It's not something that we necessarily provide. We provide a number of ingredients and a number of coincidences, but we do not provide the final answer to that, obviously. This resonates very much to me as well. Well, a parent's ultimate fear is also this attachment, right? So there was a beautiful quote uh, within the film. I might not recall it exactly the way it was. You practice attachment by attachment. But this attachment is like an impending doom. So yeah. Well, I think you know, like I think that's an interesting point because the notion of the artist, you know, in a kind of like Western and also largely white context, is the notion of an independent figure. You know, somebody who is often male is often uh, somebody who who liberates themselves from the social structures of society in order to create expressions of freedom. And I think chaos theory is about the opposite of that. And I think it's also about 
that the notion of the artist as an as somebody who does not have significant dependencies is something that we're that's being increasingly discarded in favor of artists as being articulators of these same dependencies and acknowledgements. So I do think that the, the notion of a, of, of, a, of, an, of a parent being doomed by the attachment, I'm not sure if that's the case. I'm, I think that they are blessed by this attachment and that also art has to navigate other paths by when you consider attachment and when you consider uh, and dependency, acknowledge dependency as being par- part of what art articulates. There's there's other traps, there's other pitfalls that art can fall into when doing that. You know, the the pitfall of nostalgia and sentimentality, for example, are are two that are emotionally very close to the to the expression of the sentiment of having a dependency, and I think that. There's not enough time spent with thinking about these vocab, the vocabularies that bring themselves to these, uh, to these notions. Yeah. But I, uh, that being said, I really acknowledge what you're saying. And also really thank you for reading the films in such a sort of like deep way. You know, I really, it, it means a lot. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. You said something very interesting. There is also nostalgia towards independence as well. No, I mean, in the case of how the artist position oneself or how the artist is positioned within discourse. And I mean, as you mentioned, obviously that independence is not even like autonomy is like a misnomer for, I think, cultural work, but nevertheless, that narrative seems to still prevail. I think that when you say independence, the question is independent from what? And what independence is, what other dependencies does independence bring? You know, there is a nostalgia in certain circles for the, for the notion of free speech or the notion of an independent, so-called independent position in regards to thinking. But we also see that, that the adjacencies of free speech as being able to say anything to be the devil's advocate in any situation where the, the the arguments of the other speakers are based on the tangled situation that they're in and you're going to pretend to be the person who's disentangled in order to be the devil's advocate that's i think a real manifestation of that nostalgia for free speech that i don't think is uh, necessarily beneficial and there's you know the other thing that that you proclaim independent thought does not mean for example that you're proclaiming let's say that you're proclaiming a narrative in which you're including a notion of science, for example, or a notion of scientific accuracy. It often just means being having a ticket to say anything you say. And I think that what we are talking about here is that speech acts are not independent of physical acts, that physical dependencies are a premise for speech acts that do not necessarily constrain speech, but that are also enabling word choice vocabulary, syntax, and semantics that are are not premised on the traditional idea of the free artist. I mean, coincidentally, we've just been writing a lot about transitional objects, you know, as we consider them, you know, like basically things like, you know, plush animals and stuff like that, that kids are using. And we're interested in, I've been just rereading what Mike Kelly wrote about these, the, the American artist Mike Kelly wrote about these or said about these uh, stuffed animals that he used extensively in his work. And he was considering these animals merely as unpaid emotional labor. So he was talking about these stuffed animals as forms of unrewarded material, let's say, labor that 
he, in a sense, by making them into artworks, created a contract, created a kind of contractual relationship for, namely that these things became artworks that you can then buy, you know? So there's, I, I'm just interested in that realm in general and, you know, ways in which art operates there. Sorry, maybe we're getting a little bit vague now, but... Yeah, no, it's interesting. Definitely very interesting. And we get to experience firsthand your thinking process, which is also really nice. <laughs> <laughs> are there any more questions or comments? How are things with you? I was going to ask, because we are now talking a lot about me mm-hmm. and about Metahaven, but I was going to ask how things are where you are and how, how yeah... Because we talk so much from our perspective and you are doing this podcast from your own mm-hmm. circumstances, etc. And we can pretend that we are all in the same space, but often we are not. So I just wanted to maybe like hear you a little bit. It might be interesting for Daniel to know that there is a fully fledged social media war going on in Turkey. Mm. Like, yeah, the battle is like especially dominated by the utilization of viral internet memes. The former minister of treasure, who was also the son-in-law of Erdogan, was forced to resign because he was heavily humiliated within the sphere of social media. And yeah, it is right now a very particular moment because like one of the leaders of the rightist mob is releasing a video each uh, Sunday, which is going extremely viral. Like each video is almost viewed for 15 millions-ish, approximately. And right now, the whole political debate, let's say, is going through like tweets and viral internet memes, which would be... Yeah. And maybe just a parenthesis, this guy who is releasing the videos is like a mafia. I'm not sure if he's a boss, but he's like a very renowned mobster with like heavy right-wing position and also really engaged with within the dark or deep violent practices of the state. And so he's like, he has insider knowledge that he's now revealing from somewhere outside the country. And I watched a couple, I didn't watch all of them, but it's like revealing a lot of information and like mapping out connections between the government and various illegal operations and such. But the mass media is totally mm-hmm. blind to it. That's also, I think, maybe it's like the discrepancy between social media and mass media is ever more evident. I mean, it was evident during the Gezi in 2013, during the resistance, let's say, uh, around Gezi Park and all around the country, which was actually, which coincided with your text, Can Jokes Bring Down Governments, which was really kind of helpful in positioning Gezi as well. But since then, it's like even more and more that the what's being discussed in social media or on certain on the field is completely different from what's being shown in mass media. And that begs the question of, again, the question of circulation of access, like who sees what's happening in which media and many questions around that question of dissemination of ideas and positions. But definitely as far as like devices of internet communication go, such as memes and viral internet or YouTube videos, it's like peaked at the moment. Even Erdogan's political party is trying to produce cartoon movies to disseminate propagandistic messages, which has also been backfired. And 
became even more humiliating for his party and movement. But this is, of course, a, a very long uh, subject, so I don't want to exhaust the conclusion of the session. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would almost say it's it's a room for another one yeah. because it's it's such an. Um, I mean, we're, we are going to work. We're working on a on a kind of reissue of the jokes book mm. and uh so it's also a book that of course is very to some extent quite um that the time in which it was written has a has a big impact on the analysis that it makes about what memes are and what you know this type of communication ultimately is and whom it benefits and i think that some kind of like new information or or repositioning is in order so there will be a new uh chapter added to it etc so i think as we we have that yeah. <laughs> we'll let you know because it, it it is important that it's that it's updated yeah this one Which ties into the iteration question, actually, because I was also curious if you ever revisited the works that you had done earlier on or texts that you had written earlier on. And now I learned that you are actually reworking or adding something to the jokes piece, which is I'm very curious. Yeah, so we will do that with two books. Uh, the, the other is Digital Tarkovsky, which is more recent from 2018. But other than that, we don't touch a work. Once once it's done, it's it's more or less done. Mm. So the iterate, iteration happens across works that you reiterate a question that comes from one work, you reiterate it in a next work. But also it happens within the making process of one piece that you that you work with iteration. But once something is landed in its final form, usually we consider it more or less done. Great. Thanks so much, Daniel. This was like a really inspiring morning for me, at least. I hope it was for everyone. Same here. Thank you so much, both of you and all of you for being here. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us in this conversation. Make sure to check out the show notes to find out more about what we've discussed today. There's an extensive list of links and information down there. You can also visit us at ahali.space in the interweb or get some visual insights at ahali.podcast via Instagram. I guess it goes without saying, but we really appreciate you spreading the word and supporting us by subscribing, rating, following, or whatever works for you. This was Ahali Conversations with me, Jan Altai, and we hope to see you next time. Mm-hmm.